Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission, where we talk about the biblical text in cultural context. Welcome to Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. Uh, My name is Werner. And this is Jackson. Today, we have uh, a privilege of interviewing a friend now, I think a decade now, I think that we've uh, known each other, uh, Jason Borges, super bright mind, good friend. We've actually uh, roomed at various conferences together, and I've really got to know him. Uh, he works at the Asia Minor Research Center in Antalya, Turkey, where he does biblical research and training. And he's a PhD candidate at Durham University under uh, Barclay, uh, studying uh, early Christian travel. Jason, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, it's John Barkley. I didn't say his last name. Um, those of you who are familiar with him, uh, he is a renowned professor. And uh, let's start off a little personal here. Just tell us more about yourself, uh, your family, and and how you ended up studying under John Barkley. Yeah. Um, so our family actually lives here in Turkey. And so part of that is doing biblical research and training in the country. And so our family has lived in Turkey for four years, and we have three daughters here. And so really enjoy living in Turkey. We've been here. Um, I did my MDiv at Talbot, um, and we have um, been overseas in various capacities um, in different countries and currently in Turkey. And then also while here, I'm doing my doctor, as you mentioned, at Durham University with Professor John Barclay, um, focusing on early Christian travel. So, so I mean, um, studying under John Barclay is quite the honor. Uh, what gate, uh, what uh, got you interested in wanting to study under him? Was it the topic? Was it something else? Yeah, it was the topic. Um, you know, I'm really interested in these themes of like patronage, reciprocity, honor, shame, social dynamics of early Christians. And so another dynamic was I wanted uh, to study at a British university because um, there you just write your dissertation. And so I'm actually able to do it uh, fully from a distance. So I've been there for a year and a half, but I've yet to visit England. Part of that's because of COVID, um, but still mm-hmm. been able to continue to meet. So whereas in a universe, U.S. research you know, institutes, there's usually two, three years of coursework, and um, we just didn't want to move as a family. So that seemed like a good option, and I emailed him, and he was very favorable, um, and he's been really great. I mean, I think people know him as a first-rate scholar, uh, rightly so, um, but he's really an incredible just uh, mentor and advisor as well, and has been really encouraging and great to work with in the process. So overall, um, it's been a great fit um, in that sense. Yeah, Jason, uh, uh, if I can jump in here. Jason, when I first heard that you were doing your PhD concerning travel in the ancient world, I thought, wow, that is really uh, interesting. And I've never heard of anyone studying just the concept of travel in the ancient world. How did you land on that? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So, I mean, there's a kind of a degree of irony because I started a year and a half ago when COVID kind of shut everything down. Um, so really understand the meaning of travel now more than ever, right? But, you know, I've always been really focused on what, you know, what's called the social history of early Christians. So often we focus on kind of their theology or their idea as if early Christians and the apostles just sat around writing letters and kind of contemplating theology like a medieval scholar. Well, they're anything but that. You know, they're real people trying to form communities. They were moving around. Their letters were very practical to one another. They're not theological documents. 
And so Randy Richards wrote this great little book, Paul the Letter Writer, I think, or Paul in First Century Letter Writing, um, where he just talks about the actual logistics and mechanics of like how people wrote letters and what it meant, how they how they moved them from A to B. And that just really fascinated me. And I wanted to do something like that. And I also wanted to focus on a topic here, uh, specifically in Asia Minor, since we're based in uh, Turkey here, that I could leverage some of the, you know, accessed archaeological sites here in Turkey. And a significant amount of travel, early Christian travel happened here um, in the country of Turkey. You think most of Paul's journeys were here. Uh, the book of Revelation circulated. All seven churches are here in Asia Minor. Peter as well, he sent his first epistle um, to those five provinces, which are all located here in Anatolia. So there's such a rich history that's here. And I figured, um, you know, travel was such a significant part of early Christianity. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, so often we look, I think, at the words or the documents of early Christians. But I wanted to focus more on kind of their actions um, or look at the feet um, as well and try to, you know, ask what, what can we learn about early Christians, about how they traveled, why they traveled, where they traveled and all that. Yeah. Now, when I first heard you say you were going to study travel, one of my first instincts was to say, is there anything written on that? Like, what would he, you know, like, I couldn't yeah. immediately think of like books that have been written on the topic. And now you learn pretty quickly in, in the PhD world that there's a lot written on everything, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, so like, how have Christian scholars written on this in the past? Like, what have they said or what's been written on it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so usually when, you know, most scholarship about travel has focused on the question of, like, where did Christians go? You know, for example, did Paul, when he went to Galatia, was that in northern Galatia or was that in southern Galatia type of thing? But I want to focus a little bit more on, like, why Christians traveled. Um, not just where, but throughout history, kind of the most the, the most common way of understanding Christian travel is like the apostles were in Jerusalem and then they all go out. And so travel is kind of unidirectional. It's going out it's for the sake of doing evangelism, taking the gospel out. Um, and that's kind of what you get in the book of Acts, which is kind of our first you know, Christian history about travel. And then also when Eusebius talks about the apostles going out. And that's really how the church has understood, you know, why do Christians travel? Well, to do evangelism. It's kind of been that simple. And then um, about 100 years ago, the scholars William Ramsey and Von Harnack, two great scholars of the late uh, 1900s, they kind of understood Christian travel in a different sense as kind of this imperial dynamic. And so they were trying to figure out, okay, why did Christians succeed the great Roman Empire and how did they kind of overcome it? And they really saw travel as a big part of that in terms of forming a network, a communication network, and demonstrating love to one another in such a way um, that it undercut the claims and superiority of the Roman Empire. So that had a much more kind of imperial triumph uh, type of sense, you know, travel demonstrated the superiority of Christianity. Um, and that was kind of, you know, considering the age that they wrote in of colonialism. That's kind of how they understood their own German and British travel, and they kind of projected that back. And then coming more forward, um, I think the kind of biggest advances have really been in the 1970s, where you get the social science critics. And so these are guys like um, Garrett Thiessen, Wayne Meeks, Mel Herbie. Um, they start looking at kind of the social dynamics and bringing in hospitality as well for early Christianity as they're going about who is traveling. So, for example, Wayne Meeks, he talks about how travel creates status and consistency. You know, when you travel, your identity starts to change and it becomes inconsistent. You're no longer the same person you used to be, and therefore you look for a new identity. And he said, as we look closely, a lot of Christians were actually in different locations than their, their original kind of birthplace or where they were. 
And so that made them more prone to taking on a new religious identity, such as mm. uh, Christianity. Um, uh, so in other words, know, what, you, what you're saying then is that when travel increased, pe- the very fact that people were exposed to different cultures because they were traveling made them more receptive to new religions such as Christianity. Yeah, it made them more, um, yeah, more desiring of new religious groups. They wanted community and connection with people. Um, and I, some of those people who traveled away from home, apart from their family, who needed new community and new connection, uh, found that within early Christian groups. Mm, okay. That was his thesis. So I started looking at this socially. Um, so those are just kind of some of the, you know, ways that travel has been interpreted kind of over history. So the Roman Empire, of course, is famous for its uh, roads and its, uh, you know, carrying goods and amazing ships across the Mediterranean and so on. And uh, so I can see some of the imperial connections uh, there. I remember maybe the first time I I heard about the connection between the spread of the gospel and the Roman Empire, uh, the quotation from Galatians 4, it's Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The whole idea that the Roman Empire was a particular time in human history that facilitated uh, the spread of new ideas and information and uh, and Roman roads and the, uh, the, the Roman peace was a big part of the so-called in the fullness of time is is that a is that an appropriate concept jason how how have you understood that yeah i mean that's getting um yeah kind of more into the theological meaning of the roman empire but i think there's an inevitable part of yeah the romans created and instituted a system that allowed people to move throughout uh, the whole mediterranean world and so people can move essentially all the way from Mesopotamia to Spain um, and Northern Africa with that, without any problems. And the Roman emperors really boasted in this. And so, you know, we admire the Pax Romana and all these roads. Well, that kind of narrative of, of who Rome was goes all the way back to them. You know, the emperors were always boasting and how they built bridges and new roads and um, how they, you know, rooted out all the pirates so people can tra- travel peacefully. So that was a big part of it. Um, and then they also instituted a system kind of like a postal service, so to speak, for the government employees as well, or diplomats to be able to move 20 to 30 miles every day and then stay at kind of what's called a mansion, which would be an ancient kind of hotel or resting place. So they really developed a lot of the infrastructure. Um, but remember, the reason why they did that was for their own imperial rule. They were doing that to move soldiers, and most of the roads that they built were kind of in frontier areas of places that they were trying to placate. So they did that to send soldiers out, and they also did it to um, bring money or bring goods back to Rome. So you get this in Revelation, what's that, 1819, he's talking about all the merchants that come into Rome. And so Rome really was the center of a lot of the economic activity as well. Um, And so, yeah, they tried to boast about it and to make it kind of altruistic and yeah, a lot of people did benefit from the roads. Um, let's remember that there was a very clear political and economic motive for doing that. And people like Paul um, or the average Christians um, were kind of on their own in terms of traveling. Yeah, they can make use of the roads or the different ships that were going about the empire. And so, yeah, it, it, I'll say this, it was a lot easier, but also there's travel was still quite difficult. You know, when Paul talks about the Second Corinthians 12, all the shipwrecks and hardships and bandits, um, that was still a very real dynamic for people um, traveling yeah, in antiquity. So, yeah, so let's, let's uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's uh, go just to the basics here. Uh, just give me, help people catch up. What 
how did people travel in the ancient world? We've kind of assumed a few things. We mentioned roads, whatever. What yeah. were the logistics, the mechanics, uh, just so that people are clear, because, you know, they obviously didn't have airplanes, but just so that people know we're all on the same page. How did people travel in the ancient world? Yeah, th- that's really a good question. So the basic answer is they walked. They had their own feet and they would walk um, and you could walk about 20 miles a day. And so when you start looking at um, ancient maps or topography, cities are located about 20, 25 miles away from each other because that's how far people could go. And and they just went from community to community um, as they moved. And so, um, you know, think about Paul and his trip throughout Galatia. That would be about a three-week walk to get up there. Um, Along the way, there would be different housing stations that they could stay in or hotels. These were notorious for having drunkards and prostitutes and being very um, awful places to stay. And so because of that, people always preferred to stay with family or relatives or connections. It was much better, much more preferred, especially Jewish people, because they didn't want to stay in a pagan inn that would be, um, you know, not kosher. And so if you had some money, you know, maybe you had a horse or a mule or a camel as well, um, but that would be a little bit more of elite. And if you were a political person, if you were an emperor, you were carried in a carriage, you know, by other people, Um, but that wouldn't apply to early Christians. And then, so that's on land, but another really common way of moving or traveling was by sea as well. And so sea travel was actually much faster, it was much easier. You just had to sit there, Um, but it was more dangerous as well. Um, because you were suspect to the different waves and the weather. And you can only travel on the sea from about mid-March to mid-November. And so because of the, the other five months of the year, it's just too difficult. Um, it's too stormy. I actually live here on the Mediterranean. Um, we just moved down here to this area in the summer, and it was great weather. The sea was calm. I would go swimming on most weekends. Well, sure enough, come in November, we get nasty windstorms and weather pops up. And I see exactly why people, you know, why the Mediterranean shut down for sea travel um, in the in the wintertime. So uh, some people might think of more recent travel, like, you know, horse and buggy and carriage. And like, yeah, if you're in America traveling across the frontier, that sort of thing. You're saying that in the ancient world, people didn't have these horse and buggy type things that if you had it, if you had a carry on your back or you had a mule to carry stuff. Yeah, at best, you had an animal. Um, the people with um, only like Roman governors or emperors would be have a kind of um, a carriage of any kind. Um, you know, a, you know, they called it a, a litter. It's actually a box that was carried by four people. Um, they really didn't have a horse and buggy at all. So, so that sounds um, a bit dangerous. Uh, it seems like not. I mean, if you're just walking, being by yourself, uh, I'm people travel in groups. I assume rather than individually. Yeah, people traveled in groups, and um, for sure, um, because it was incredibly dangerous, there was robbers and, ba- robbers and bandits. You know, the best business in, in the ancient world was banditry or piracy, essentially taking things from other people. Um, so people always did travel in groups, and there's always this tension. You know, some people would try to act really poor and hide all of their money as if they weren't worth robbing, and then other people would try to act really rich and prestigious as if they had a lot of power and therefore weren't worth robbing. So there's always kind of like a game theory in terms of, you know, how you present yourself as you travel and what kind of person you are. So travel is a, uh, is, is a concept that we take for granted, you know, in the modern world, especially as Americans. We're a very mobile society. You know, I was in Southern California last week and, you know, all the freeways. And, and so the, the whole concept of travel for us is just assumed, you know, being able to relocate ourselves and and so on, uh, moving your family from one place to another place that's more favorable. 
Uh, this is really not how travel was understood in the ancient world. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you have to walk, um, it just changes the whole dynamic. You know, imagine you need to, you know, Werner, you need to get to Peru, but you cannot use any technology, you know, no phones, no passports, you know, no, no bicycle even. All you have is your two feet and you don't have the internet to find somewhere to stay. And so one, it makes it a lot slower. And then the other dynamic is that social connections actually become a lot more important because once you leave your community, you, then nobody knows who you are. Mm -hmm. And therefore you need to always be reintegrated into a new community. And I think this is, I know we can get into this a bit later, but this idea that what travel basically does is it creates a person who is socially dislocated. They're no longer a part of their group. So by moving away from their, their polis or their, you know, their primary community, um, they lose that sense of identity and who they are. And so they need to be socially reintegrated in the community, or they need to always have some sort of connection as they travel. And so there's a few details that Jewish people were always, you know, the Jews in diaspora were well connected. Um, we know that they sent money back and forth quite a bit throughout the different communities and kind of presupposes that they traveled. And um, often the Jewish synagogues would have kind of a guest house attached to it. And so um, it's quite likely that Paul and others, as they traveled, would have been staying actually at the guest house of the local synagogues um, or with other, you know, that would have been early on, kind of before they're able to plant churches and get them going. But then once kind of a new Christian identity developed, or I should say a Jewish identity around Christ developed, then those people who were identifying with Christ kind of became the new social network that allowed for Christians to travel um, between the communities. You know, recently I've been doing some study and thinking on Paul's uh, desire to raise funds for the Jerusalem church. And I thought about the money he was carrying back. And I thought, have you been able to figure out if there were any special precautions taken when people were carrying money? Because, it, it, you know, you, because you think about, he's really going to be accused of being a thief if all of a sudden, conveniently, some bandit, oh, some bandit took all your money, sorry. It seems like you would take extra precaution if you're taking money as opposed to just normal travel. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so that's why you see Paul is always getting a delegate from all the churches. So in you know, 2 Corinthians 9, he talks about these two brothers um, who are from the churches and they're well known and they're coming to Corinth as part of the collection. And most likely they are coming with money from their own churches as well. And so I think the best, you know, there obviously weren't guns back then, there weren't storage facilities. And so you just had to travel in groups and travel through acquaintances um, if you knew. So this is where trust and, you know, relational ties becomes more important. But I mean, I'll say, um, you know, it wasn't unique to Christians because remember the Jewish people um, in diaspora transported an incredible amount of money back to Jerusalem every year to pay for the temple tax all the way up until 70 AD. Um, so every Jewish, I think, family or every Jewish man had to pay one shekel, um, which is a tremendous amount of money. And so, it, you know, it's a problem that, you know, they weren't the only ones trying to figure out. Um, but we just don't have a lot of data as to like exactly how they did that. Now, what about Roman roads? Uh, any, anything else that you would add about Roman roads about, I mean, do they still exist? Can we can we go and, and see actually the mechanics of how, of how, how these roads worked and what people would be looking at? 
when they're traveling. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, the best surviving one is Via Appia, kind of the one of the, the first major Roman road that got built going south out of Rome. Um, another important one is the Via Sebastia, um, which Caesar Augustus built in 6 BC. And essentially it connects the region of Pamphylia here in Antalya all the way up into Galatia, Pisidian Antioch. And so part of that still remain. I've done hikes on that road. It, you know, not all of it, but I would say maybe 10, 15% of it, you can still identify and walk on the same stones. Um, and that is, I mentioned that one specifically because when Paul in Acts 13, you know, comes up from Cyprus in the Perge and goes all the way up to Pisidian Antioch, um, most likely he would have been walking on that Via Sebastia, that Roman road um, built by Caesar Augustus that still exists to this day. I should say, uh, which parts of it still exist. So how wide are we talking are these roads? Yeah, um, so about three meters, the standard one, it, it's about 10 feet, 12 feet wide. So enough for one, you know, for two horses to pass by. Sometimes people did have like a little, like a crude carriage to carry materials in, um, like especially wheat or different farm things in. So wide enough for a cart. And at a few points, they become double wide. So they'll be up to like 20 feet wide. Um, but in general, like kind of like pretty much like one lane wide. Um, typical road that we have today. And they're all built out of stone. They're a flattened stone that are all jigsawed and pieced together. They have curbing and they actually have like a gutter on the sides as well um, to capture the rainwater. So the rain didn't go on it. So, I mean, it's really incredible technology. Um, and a lot of these roads, interestingly, you know, because of the routes, you know, you can only build roads in certain places because the topography and a lot of the Roman roads are actually this in the same location as the major Turkish highways. And so most of the Roman roads are actually under Turkish highways and roads that have been built over it since then. And only in a few cases where they have readjusted the road line do the old Roman roads actually still exist, or perhaps where cities have moved um, throughout history. So I can just imagine uh, Paul walking on this uh, Roman road, which at the time was, you know, a lot newer and uh, a lot more people traveling on it. Did he have... As a Roman citizen, any identification that would make it easier for him to travel? Yeah, it's a, a good question. Um, probably not, because remember um, in Acts, when he appeals to his citizenship, he has to verbally say it. And then before then, nobody knew. It kind of caught everyone by surprise. Um, and, you know, all throughout Acts, he's getting um, imprisoned and nobody knows he's a Roman citizen or they wouldn't have done this. So, you know, that's a question I had is, you know, you have to say it, but then how would Paul have even proved that? Um, how would he have demonstrated that? So probably some documentation, but I don't know if they traveled with it. Um, as far as I know, they didn't have like a passport, so to speak, that proved your identity. Um, and so because you didn't have anything to prove your identity, again, that becomes, you know, that creates that dynamic of your your community so much more important as you travel. So the 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 lack of a way to prove your identity really adds to the sense of vulnerability, right? As you're traveling and who are you, what, who are you, what people are you a part of and raises yeah, all these yeah. questions that you have to then kind of re reestablish and, and uh, uh, prove over and over again, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, it. I would say the biggest thing travel does is it makes someone vulnerable and then hospitality on the flip side is so significant because it takes away that vulnerability from someone. It brings them into a community. It provides a roof for them. And it gives them a sense of kind of a, a local identity. Who are you? Well, I'm, you know, a guest of that person over there. So. so. So you brought up initially 
the, your interest in reciprocity, patronage, you know, you're talking about hospitality. So these are all honor, shame type themes. So yeah. how does honor and shame relate to travel? Could you kind of unpack that a little bit? Because a lot of our listeners are interested in honor and shame. And I'm certain it's going to have a lot of relevance for reading scripture and for even today. Oh, man. Yeah, that's a, um, a deep topic. So I think it kind of ties into what we're saying. And so remember that a person's honor is their kind of their status within a group, their identity in front of in the eyes of other people. And so when you travel, you're no longer part of a community anymore. And therefore, your status goes down. Um, you become an unknown person. Um, and therefore, as you are moving to another place, I think more than anything, what traveling so travel causes you to lose your own identity, but then also provides opportunity for other people to extend hospitality um, or generosity and to help you out. And I think um, throughout early Christianity, hospitality becomes a very significant thing, specifically because you have all these missionaries who are itinerating, they need somewhere to stay. And hospitality becomes a primary way that people demonstrate um, their own piety or their own virtue or their own character. Um, and, and they do that by welcoming someone else uh, in the name of the Lord. And so um, often Paul talks about people traveling in Christ. And part of that is that that becomes their primary identity. You know, so often we think of in Christ as kind of this you know, abstract idea that applies to me as an individual. But you notice when Paul talks about in Christ, he's always talking not so much about what I as an individual, the riches and treasures I have in Christ, but he's talking about these social dynamics, you know, welcome this person in the Lord, or he will come to you in the Lord. Well, that means his primary identity is as a believer, and you need to honor and extend worth and value to this person as uh, an honorable guest. Um, and be in relationship and mutual mutual relationship with this person because of your common identity in Christ. So I would um, I would say you know uh, because hos or sorry because travel generates opportunities for hospitality that becomes a way for Christians to demonstrate kind of what their honor code is. Um, are they going to um, extend hospitality or extend welcome to this person um, that they might not know? Um, but their only true connection is by virtue of they both profess Christ and um, believe in Christ. So you're talking about hospitality a lot, but in modern terms, at least in the West, hospitality is you invite someone over for dinner on a Friday night and or whatever else, something like that. You yeah. seem to be talking about a far more robust sense of hospitality, one that actually seems to uh, reflect a lot of my experience in East Asia. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. So hospitality um, is something much more robust. If, you know, listeners have ever traveled overseas, um, been in the house of someone, they understand, you know, the full spread that's um, there. You stay several hours and, you know, probably stay even several days. It includes, you know, not just a, a meal, um, but includes provision and entertainment and um, probably even staying there for several days. And so when I talk about a host, the two main things that a host is going to do is provide Essentially, they're going to function like a hotel. They're going to provide a bed and they're going to provide food for people. Um, and then the other thing that they're going to do is provide social connections for people or kind of like legal protection uh, for them as well. And so you think about, you know, two examples. We can think about Philemon. Uh, who is in the city of Colossae, um, he functioned as a host to a lot of Christian travelers who are going through that area. Um, and we know this because think in Philemon uh, verse 23, there's these people who send their greetings to Philemon. So they personally know him, you know. Um, so it'd be Mark, Epaphroditus, um, 
and several other people um, and the same. And so they know Philemon um, from having stayed there and visited to him, visited with him. And therefore Philemon becomes known as a person. He doesn't only host the local church, you know, the weekly gathering of the church in his community. We see that in, was it verse one or two? Um, but then Philemon also hosts itinerant Christians who are coming through the area through Colossae, which itself is a city that is, you know, right at the um, inner um, intersection of two major road routes that were going through Asia Minor. And so Philemon becomes an example of somebody who would extend that sort of hospitality to someone, you know, providing for them, but then also giving them legal protection, business connections, uh, as well within the community. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I can see this yeah. as, as uh, being a huge, huge benefit for, for, for Christians in the Roman Empire as your network, your social network, be, by being a part of the church just grows and it gives you the benefit of being able to travel with relative safety compared to other people in the empire right that may not be wealthy but they're wealthy socially you know they have they have a bigger networking exactly. quotient you know they've got they've got more connections than the average you know peasant uh, yeah. just by virtue of their relationship with Christ and his people yeah that's exactly it. there's that logistical element and then i think even if they never traveled to another place they because christians are always going back and forth maybe they're hosting christians who come visit them they start to acquire kind of a transnational identity beyond their community and they start realizing wow being a christian is more than just you know my little home group or church that meets weekly here but i'm a part of something that spans the whole empire and so that becomes significant because paul starts talking about like oh i've heard of you know your ways or he talks about how your faith has spread throughout the whole regions um you know he mentions that in romans 1 to the thessalonians as well and so all of a sudden because you're part of this larger community your reputation or your mm. honor can be spread up globally. It can extend beyond just your local community. All of a sudden, Christians in other cities get to know about you and your, your generosity, your hospitality, your faith, and so on. Um, and so that's kind of another way it ties into identity is it creates kind of a, a global identity through which I, you know, people can start acquiring um, new honor through that. Wow, that's and really again, cool. I'll say real quickly, this is really obvious, but news and information only traveled as people traveled, right? There's no email, there's no phone, there's no newspapers to move information back and forth. So the Christians in Philippi only knew about the Christians in Thessaloniki or in Ephesus because someone physically walked from one place to another. And so travel is the only way that there could be that sort of, um, you know, empire-wide connection or a broader sense of uh, global identity for Christians. So, you know, this this podcast is all about the intersection between theology and mission. And so let's bring this to the biblical text and some implications for biblical interpretation. If I understand, you've done significant amount of work on uh, uh, Philemon uh, or Philemon. And, and so how does travel impact some of the reading of, of that letter? Yeah, Um well, the first one I mentioned um, kind of before, um, in the sense that Philemon is a host within the city um, of Colossae, right? It's a strategically located city. You have itinerants coming through. I remember Paul is based in Ephesus, and people are traveling out from there throughout all of Asia Minor. Um, and then in verse 7, Paul uh, mentions, um, I have heard that you refresh all of the saints or refresh the hearts of the saints. That word refresh um, is actually a technical term 
uh, in Paul. Um, he only uses it four or five times, and every time it refers directly to hospitality. And so um, Philemon is known as a person who is refreshing or um, giving reprieve to other Christians by being hospitable to them. Well, that becomes interesting because what does Paul want Philemon to do for him when he sends Onesimus back? Now, this has really puzzled uh, scholars because scholars say, well, Paul never says what he wants Philemon to do because they're always thinking, well, he's just a slave. Does he want Philemon to manumit him as a slave, to forgive him as a slave? Paul never talks about his slavery. Well, Paul gives really clear instructions in verse 18. He says, welcome him back. Welcome is a, you know, a word for hospitality, welcome and receive. And so it gets um, you know, directly to the request of, of Paul in verse 18. Then later on, he says, um, you know, give me some sort of benefit, help me out. I want you um, to refresh my heart. Um, or, and he get there, he's talking about Onesimus to welcome him back, extend hospitality to him. Um, and then at the end of the letter, Paul says, oh yeah, by the way, re prepare a guest room for me. And so Paul is hoping to be out of prison soon, and he's going to come visit uh, Philemon uh, quickly. And so part of that dynamic is like, yeah, I'm going to come travel to you. And it's going to be kind of a moment of accountability, you know, the moment of truth. Did you really receive back Onesimus the way that I asked you to? Because remember, you owe me. I sent all of, you know, I sent my associates to you earlier, Paphroditus and Luke, and you became a believer through my ministry. Therefore, you owe me. And I know you're frustrated because your slave ran away, but he's coming back. And I want you to welcome him back. And I'm going to come travel to you. I want you to welcome me. And I'm going to check up on that. And not only that, but what Paul says really interestingly is that I hope to be gifted to you. You know, some translations say restored back to you, but that's the word gift. It's charis. So Paul tells Philemon, I want you to pray to God so that God would send me to you. And my coming to you is going to be a gift to you. And so it's really interesting the way Paul is always situating travel within a divine context. You know, it always, his movements are always pulling people into kind of a triangular relationship where um, people, where you have the guest and the host, and then God are in a three-way relationship. God is sending someone out to that host, and that host is using God's resources to welcome this person from God. And when they do that, they demonstrate their own loyalty um, and allegiance to God in Christ. Now, it seemed like you suggested. It seemed like you suggested that uh, Philemon and Paul had never met personally, but it was only only knew each other through mutual friends. Did I hear you right? Yeah, so that's my reading. We know that Paul didn't go to Colossians, and then what people often say is that Philemon would have gone to Ephesus, ran into Paul, and got saved there. But I don't. Um, again, we don't know for sure. Um, I realize kind of all theories are historically a bit, you know, speculative, but it, it looks like the person who founded the church in Colossae was actually Epaphras and not Philemon. And so it seems like Epaphras and other Pauline associates were the ones who went to Colossae. So just kind of logistically seems to make a lot more sense that Paul's associates went to Colossae and started the church that way through Epaphroditus. So that's how they knew each other. There, there's a seem to be intimacy in that letter. But yeah, you're saying that intimacy was able to be developed even though the relationship was through mutual friends. Through travel. Yeah. yeah. The travel mm. connections had created these social ties and the social network mm. that allowed Paul to make this request. But also think of it, that very same travel and that, that created that social network also allowed Onesimus as a pagan to um, go and find Paul, right? 
So it, there's some theory. Why did Onesimus run away? Did he run away or why did he depart? Did he depart as a runaway slave trying to find freedom? Or did he purposefully go to Paul in order to find a mediator who can advocate for him and try to solve the problem for him? This was within Roman law. This was very um, doable and permissible for slaves to do that. And that makes a lot more sense to me because how do you get Philemon meeting Paul? If Philemon just runs away, how in the world does he encounter Paul? You know, these two kind of um, needles in a haystack um, and end up in the same place as Paul. So it seems like Onesimus is intentionally going to Paul. He knows that Paul has a certain status and identity and persona um, that he has learned about from these associates of Paul that have come to him, um, now departed. And remember, he was a slave in Philemon's house, and he would have met Paul's associates because he as a slave would have been serving them. Um, and then now he needs help in trying to solve this conflict he has uh, with Philemon. He realizes, okay, Paul is this person of status. Well, this is really ironic because where is Paul at that time when he writes Philemon? He's in jail. He's a prisoner, right? And so all of a sudden, within early Christian networks, that you have Paul is recognized as a person of authority and status, even though he is a prisoner, even though he is shamed and is a low-class person within the eyes of Rome. Within early Christian social networks, we can realize the way that they traveled, that Paul was a recognized person who can mediate in this conflict. And it's not only Onesimus who went to Paul. Remember that several parties from Corinth came to Paul um, as well. And you know, essentially that's what first and second Corinthians is, is these parties coming to Corinth while Paul was also in Ephesus and most likely in prison as well. And there. I want to share a project with you that demonstrates how the work of Mission One makes communities more like the kingdom of God. Mission One walked alongside our partner organization in Nepal to create and implement plans that help the community discover for themselves the transforming power of Jesus. These people went from living in caves with poor sanitary conditions to living in a village in a location with a smaller chance of landslides. Then they created a shared economy centered around goat husbandry. Sanitary conditions have improved and continue to improve. Meanwhile, people have seen the church as a source of blessing. Many began to come to faith, and today about half of the village are part of the church. This is a glimpse into the vision of Mission One to see every community transform for the glory of God and the honor of all people. To learn more about Mission One projects like this one, visit missionone.org. So yeah. am I hearing yeah. you rightly that your reading is not that he was a runaway slave, uh, but that he was going to Paul to settle dispute between uh, Onesimus and, and uh, Philemon. And is that right? First off, am I hearing you right? Yeah, yeah. It's called the Amicus Domini, which is just a Latin for a friend of my master. Um, okay. That's exactly it. And I would say all the way until pretty much 1990, Christians are the main interpretation was that Onesimus was a runaway. But since 1990, kind of the consensus in scholarship is kind of tilting towards uh, viewing Onesimus more as someone who went in order to find a mediator to reconcile. So what would be the need for Paul then to say, welcome him back? Like, uh, if he's not run away, why does he need to welcome him back? He was just going to settle dispute. So it's to welcome him um, into your house. So that, okay, how um, deep do we want to go on this? So, <laughs> well, this is going to be an immediate question. I know that most people are going to have is why is Paul yeah. sending Onesimus back to him and say, welcome him? Well, I think, um, so remember when Onesimus ran away, his intent was to find a reconciler. Well, 
his master Philemon really didn't care what his intent was. All he would have recognized, all that would have happened in his eyes, or according to his perception, is his slave ran away. It looks like he doesn't have control oh. and authority. He would have been ashamed in his community, regardless mm. of why he ran away. And so Paul is saying, welcome, me, welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And so Paul's whole point is, yeah, he left you as a slave. You probably think he ran away, but you know that that's your opinion. Only the most important thing, you know, regarding Onesimus, why he left was Onesimus's intent. But Paul's sending him back as a totally different person. He's no longer a slave. He's a brother. He he is in Christ, and therefore you need to welcome him back as that sort of person. He has a new identity, um, and that's what you need to welcome him back to in your house. And I'd actually go a little bit further and say that Paul. He's not just asking him to welcome him back as a Christian, but to welcome him back as an itinerant minister. Remember that this is a letter of commendation. Um, Philemon's a letter of commendation. Um, Paul usually um, inserts these within other letters. So, you know, for Timothy and Titus and the Corinthian epistles. Um, and he does it when he is commending one of his associates saying, you know, this person is, I can't come to you, but this person's bringing this letter from me, we'll receive him, welcome him, um, and treat him like me. And well, Philemon is, this, is exactly that. Paul says, I am sending this person to you. He is like a brother to me. I gave birth to him, um, so on and so forth. And so Paul is sending Onesimus back actually as an itinerant minister, and he wants Philemon to give him hospitality and actually send Onesimus back to Paul in order to do ministry. And Paul explicitly mm. says that is, I would love to keep him here, but I'm going to put the ball in your court, and I want you to gift him back to me. And so mm. I want you to be an honorable patron and be generous by sending him back to me and being a part of the ministry in that way. And so what you get is actually three different trips for Onesimus. He departed away to find reconciliation. He comes back to get reconciliation and to be welcomed by Philemon. And then the third trip in the future, Paul anticipates that um, Onesimus will come back to him and serve in the ministry that way. So there's a change in honor status for Onesimus in this whole three-part journey, isn't there? Yeah, and, for sure. I mean, and, his biography is, yeah, really incredible as he becomes yeah. a believer, and that changes how Philemon is supposed to relate to him, yeah, and yeah. welcome him. Yeah, yeah. So so this subverts uh, the hierarchical relationship then that Onesimus would have had under Philemon prior to his becoming a Christian pr prior to him, prior to Onesimus becoming a follower of Christ and uh, a friend of Paul. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, yeah, for sure. yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you, then here you start getting, you know, Galatians 328 in practice, you know, and there's no longer, you know, slave nor free, um, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. And so these sort of dynamics um, kind of get erased away. And all of a sudden he becomes a brother and they're to relate to one another in that sense. Um, I would have to say that, you know, we have to temper that with Colossians 4. You know, Paul does talk about masters and slaves and slaves submitting uh, to masters. And I think that Colossians and Philemon were actually written at the same time and taken together. Because remember that Onesimus is in Colossians 4, 8. Uh, he's the one who actually took the letter of Colossians to Colossae from Paul as well. So it, it's difficult, I, the whole slave-master relationship, but I think Paul's main point is that he is simply no longer a slave. That is not a, that is, legally, he might still have been a slave. I'm not doubting that. I'm talking about his primary social identity in mm. relation to Philemon. Mm. 
Hmm. That's really helpful nuance. Now, you know, there are other places in the New Testament that I could see travel shedding light on you know, the significance of a text. Like I think about Phoebe traveling to Rome and there may be some others that you think are worth mentioning. Um, could you say a word about some of these other places that you think travel is significant for us to understand the text? Yeah. Um, you know, third John is another great example. Second John um, is essentially, you know, they're wrestling through um, how to extend hospitality and to whom to extend hospitality. Um, you mentioned Philemon. So her name only appears one time. Or, or Phoebe. Or I'm sorry. Yes, Phoebe. Get my P's mixed up here. Um, <laughs> So um, she appears one time, uh, Romans 16, verse 1 and 2, and Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at King Cry, that you may receive her in the Lord as benefits the saints and help her in whatever way she may require from you. For she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. So essentially, Paul has this incredible message to send to the church in Rome. He's in Corinth at the time, you know, as he writes this. And he wants to go visit Rome, but he can't because he has to go to Jerusalem in the opposite direction. But he's going to come later. And so in the meantime, he sends this letter. And it's a very important, significant letter. And he sends it through this person, Phoebe. And he says she has been a helper to you. Now, often um, we might read helper as, you know, kind of a secretarial assistant, you know, someone who brought Paul his tea type of thing. That is totally not what that word means at all. Um, the word is actually a patron um, or a, a host. And so there's other inscriptional evidence that this was a prominent figure in the community who helped travelers when they were coming through. And so she was a helper to Paul. Remember, Paul went um, to and from Corinth three times. And honestly, um, Phoebe is in the city of Cancri, which is the port city of Corinth. It's a few miles east of Corinth. Corinth was not immediately on the water, um, but Cancri was the port city on the east. So whenever Paul was going back and forth between Corinth and Ephesus, I should say any believers are going back and forth like that, they would have gone through Cancri and maybe stayed, most likely stayed with her. So that is how she has been a helper to many and to myself. And what's interesting is that Think with me on this. Romans 16 has the names of a good number of people. I think it's like 25 or 28 people. Paul's never been, Paul's never been to Rome. How does Paul know these people? Mm. Well, most likely they were Jewish Christians who were kicked out of Rome, um, just like Priscilla and Aquila. They had either been in Corinth or had been in Asia Minor, and Paul met them in those places. And now they've gone back, just like Priscilla and Aquila have gone back as well. And so they would have, as they came into Corinth, they would have likely received hospitality um, from Phoebe as they were traveling. So they already know Phoebe. And what's more important than anything is if they stayed with Phoebe, they're indebted to Phoebe. They have to host her. Now that she's coming to Rome, they have to you know, provide for her because she provided for them. And not only that, but she, um, they are indebted to her. Or they have to kind of respect the message that she is bringing. And this is exactly what Paul asked of them. He says, I'm commending to you this person that you may receive her in the Lord as befits the saints. Like, I want you to welcome her. I want you to host her. I want you to take her around to the different churches and make sure she has a hearing um, in the different churches and that she can read this letter that I'm sending you among the different house churches that are in Rome and help her in whatever she may require from you. Um, that's just a general... Some people have read into that a little bit too much, I think. Um, you know, like Phoebe had a lawsuit in Rome and that um, she is already going to Rome and she needs legal help. Um, and it lost a particular case. But that's just a general phrase um, that appears in all these ancient letters that 
whenever someone's recommending a traveler to a host, they say, I want you to welcome them and help them out whatever they need. It's kind of a, you know, a blanket statement for that. So that's yeah. kind of, you know, you start seeing these travel dynamics and the, the social connections that it creates and the new opportunities that it generates for Paul as he wants to deliver this message to Rome. Have you found anything in your research to suggest uh, any unique challenges that women face in travel versus men? As I'm thinking about Phoebe traveling as a woman. Yeah, you know, how would I answer that? I mean, the challenges I think are pretty obvious um, and apparent. Women did travel um, and women were patrons as well in the sense that they hosted others. You know, Phoebe is an example. And there are other um, women in Asia Minor like her who host others. You know, I can't answer your question directly. I just know that women as a whole traveled significantly less than men. I think as I've kind of done research, I would say only about 10% of the travelers have been women and 90% have mm. been men. Wow. So if you were traveling as a woman, chances are you probably had some status. Yeah. I mean, it would take that, you know, um, in order to kind of move across space and to move, you know, move into public into new communities. Yeah. So, so was Phoebe uh, then considered not just someone who gave hospitality, but who supported people financially? When Paul writes that she, that she has been a patron to me also, would that mean more than hospitality? Um, it could be. So a large part of hospitality was actually sending people off with gifts. And you're responsible for that person, not only when they traveled to you, but when they traveled from you and until they got into their next location. And so you think about this um, when Paul um, gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta, you know, they welcome him there. And the very last um, phrase is they they honored him with great honors and like sent him away with gifts, you know, as they were leaving the island as a demonstration of their kind of benevolence or generosity. Um, so it could, um, you know, people have talked about, you know, another theory has been that she paid for the this letter of Romans to be written, which would have cost about the equivalent of like 5,000 US dollars um, in our, you know, just the papyri and the copies of it and paying for a scribe and all that it was very expensive. But you know, the problem is, is that she has been a patron to many and myself. And mm. so trying to figure out a way that she has been a patron to many. Um, and I think the best, most plausible sense is that, you know, primarily by hosting people, um, either the weekly gathering of Christians within the community or travelers that are coming through um, the strategic port city. Now, uh, we've, for most people, this is a brand new topic. They've never thought of travel in the ancient world. They've never thought about how it affects the Bible, whatever else. So yeah. I want to give people some handles. And so if I were to say, how does travel function in ministry and theology? Okay. What are maybe yeah. two or three you know, points that you might add to kind of tie this together or really give some people some takeaways? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is challenging because travel in the ancient world is so different than travel now, simply because we have airplanes and passports and hotels. And so all of these problems that we face as travel, travel, um, our, our travel just has so, so fewer problems. Um, I would say a couple of things um, that stand out is one, travel kind of creates a relationship for the traveler with God. They are sent by God. They're representative of God. Um, you know, it's interesting that the apostles are called apostles. That just means sent ones, right? You know, of all the names they could have picked uh, for themselves, it was the apostles, or the first name for Christians was the way, or, the, you know, it just means the road. So they called themselves the road, and the, their leaders were called the sent ones. 
And so there's this dynamic of kind of divine movement within travel as well. Um, you know, they were going out and they were, you know, for God's purposes, not only in evangelism, but in order to build up the body as well. Um, and then another way I think that this plays out is that it creates social ties within the community. I think we've talked, that's probably the main one that we've talked about so far. So as you travel, you know, you had mentioned that you're going to be going to Southeast hoping to go to South Asia in a month. Well, you're, you know, going to be in churches, you'll be participating, doing teaching and training there. Well, that's going to create a new sense of social ties. You're going to be encouraged by that. And they're going to be encouraged by you. And you're going to have relationships that last as well. So in a very concrete way, you know, travel and going and being in person creates a relational connection um, that, you know, Zoom or texting just doesn't. And then I think the third thing that travel does, um, I'll talk about you know, it creates kind of this a sense of judgment, not in a bad way, um, but it allows people to prove who they are. Um, it allows them to demonstrate their character. You know, are they going, are they for you? Are they a friend? Are they loyal to you? And so you think of Jesus's words. Um, so often, you know, he talks about the son of man coming and if how you receive the son of man is how you're going to be judged. Or when he sends out his disciples in Luke 10, Jesus says, you know, if they uh, receive you in a worthy way, then you stay there. But if they do not welcome or receive you, then leave that town. And so there's something about that person um, that gets revealed by how um, they treat or relate to travelers. So I think it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate um, generosity and um, kind of and help other people out. I mean, really, who you know, travelers kind of, it's, okay, I'll mention this as well. Early Christian documents, they'll talk about tra uh, widows, orphans, and travelers all together. Those three all go together. Well, what do all three of those groups have in common? They're yeah, kind of, their vulnerability, right? They're isolated socially. Um, they're not part of kind of a, a family or a network, um, you know, immediate family. And therefore they need help. They need to be, you know, covered and assisted and to become part of a family. And so I think travel allows us to, um, you know, take care of the vulnerable, and protect them. Well, this is probably too easy a question for you, <laughs> but this naturally made me think the implications today, like for the church and for believers. I know you're in the middle of your research, but so far, what would you say are some things that you would like contemporary Christians of the church today to start thinking about more because of the research that you're seeing? Oh, man. Yeah. So when you're doing a PhD in history, um, yeah, it's good to ask questions like that. But I don't think I have gotten there. Um, and again, part of that is because travel today is so different. But again, I keep coming back to hospitality, you know, realizing that people have traveled um, great distances, you know, especially in America, um, just a lot of immigrants there trying to imagine what their situation is like. And then another thing is try to um, consider where you are traveling to, who you are going to, you know, are you just going to um, vacation for yourself or is there a way that you can go actually to people um, and use your travel to create social ties or connections? And I think it's given me just a greater appreciation. You know, we live in Antalya, um, which is a bit of a tourist location as well. So we have different friends that are always coming through um, and glad to host them. But I think studying this just gives me a greater appreciation for like, wow, as people travel and as people come to our house here, it's a way for me to plug in or remember the global body of Christ in a very tangible, concrete way. And so, you know, just last month, we hosted friends from India, from Central Asia and from America. And it's just like, you know, just have great conversations. It's a part of, you know, connecting with them. So, I mean, that's what comes to mind on that, Jackson. Um, 
But yeah, I think uh, for now I'm doing my dissertation research and then once it's done and I have uh, have it all finished, you know, part two is obviously come and look around the kind of implications of it all and how it plays out. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly don't have specifics for you, but as I think through like how people think about the issue of refugees, uh, people think about, you know, how easily people do cross borders and short-term and long-term missions and all these sort of, we can, we can travel so much now. It, it even seems like, it makes your research even more significant if we can tease out some of the implications. Yeah. And I think a big one is to realize that travel has meaning. Often we just think of travel as a tool. Like I just, I'm only doing it to get to, you know, from A to B. Um, and it, but we need to realize that travel and movement in and of itself um, has significance um, and just be aware of that. And the significance often, you know, comes from the cultural frame or window that we place around it. And so, so yeah, who, yeah, travel of itself is a, is a meaningful thing. Sometimes I, I use the phrase that 90% of life is just showing up, you know, and the idea that when we are physically in a space and with, you know, people that we love or people that we can learn from or uh, new relationships that open new doors, it, it seems like so many things happen in our mm. lives that are good and beautiful. Mm. And, uh, and it really emphasizes the sense of the Christian life being embodied, you know, and it's not just a cognitive thing, you know, like being in Christ, you know, it's not just a spiritual cognitive reality. Uh, it's something that we, we live out in a physical way. We embody it. And the, the travel dimension that you've brought out in this conversation, Jason, uh, it really helps the New Testament sort of come alive. These all, all these little verses about greet so and so, and you know, carry this letter here, and it it really helps the the physicality of the faith is. Uh, I don't know. It's it's kind of more lucid and clear to me. Good. Yeah, that's yeah. I think for early Christians, you know, this was a main way that they articulated their faith. Um, was by going and visiting other communities, by carrying a letter, by welcoming someone who was traveling to them, um, was a key way that they identified as Christians. Yeah, it seems like one implication might simply be is intentionally finding ways to help strangers and bring strangers into your home in some fashion, because there's a lot of fear of the outsider, the stranger, whatever else. And mm -hmm. It seems like even if it's a local stranger, but constantly trying to broaden our network of people, not for the sake of like networking in the business sense, but mm -hmm. for the sake of deepening relationships with people that you don't know, because we do tend to be more and more insular in terms of our relationships with social media. We don't tend to branch out as much because you don't have to talk to strangers as much. Seems like yeah. nowadays, all the more is important to find ways to interact with people you don't know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's key. You know, it, another part of travel or like receiving travelers is just to learn. You know, I think of Herodotus as the first historian wrote, you know, 500 years before the New Testament. It, you just went around traveling in order to learn about other cultures and see how they, you know, what they did. Or people would, you know, go, go to Athens to learn from the philosophers as well, or to go learn, you know, be with other people. So I think there's a way in which, you know, either when we travel or when we host people, you know, we can learn, we can broaden our conceptions of other people and where they come from and what they have to offer as well. Well, we're coming up on the end of our time and we want to respect uh, your time. Do I just have a closing question or two for you? One's the easy one, one's a little harder one. Here's the harder one yeah. first. Right. Is, uh, this is doing theology thinking mission. So one of the things we'd like to ask is, what is it that you think 
theology needs to learn from missions. And what is it that you think that missions needs to learn from theology? Oh, man. I know. Dude, oh, it's a big one. But guess what? You like, <laughs> you should email me. Give me a heads up on that one, man. <laughs> um, so I think that theologians can learn um, from the, yeah, from the practitioner world that theology is always done in a context. Um, it's always done by human beings who are in relationship in an actual place um, with actual concerns. And then I would say that people who are, you know, more active in practical ministry can learn from theologians that theology, <laughs> there is theology um, in the sense that there is a, you know, I think so much of practical ministry or how we view the Christian life can be so secularized, you know, from business books or pragmatics. Um, and those are all helpful. And I, I, you know, I struggle with this, you know, I really enjoy those books, but then we forget there's kind of a, you know, a theological dimension to everything that we're doing. Um, and specifically what I mean by that is that there's a cross, um, there's a cruciform dimension to everything. And the cross really redefines everything, um, how we go about, you know, relating to people, um, and engaging with people. And I think that is inherently, it makes all of our actions inherently theological. I think we forget about that sometimes and, you know, just kind of run, you know, run different ministries like a business. Mm. All right. What's the easy question? The easy question is this, uh, any books or resources you'd recommend people read who want to follow up on some of this discussion? Yeah, I figure since you're in the middle of all your research, you probably have all these things, all these books all around you. Yeah. I'm looking at them to see um, which one I would recommend. I wouldn't, um, you know, if, if this really triggered your curiosity, um, I would, two that come to mind, they're not related to travel because honestly, there isn't a good, helpful book um, on this topic. This guy, Lionel Kasson, wrote a book about Roman travel in the 70s. But it, kind of for believers, I would say the book I mentioned, um, Randy Richards wrote a book about Paul and first century letter writing. Um, just really wonderful, fasc fascinating book. Um, and it overlaps a lot with what I've said. And then if you want to look at maybe hospitality, obviously we talked a lot about that as well today because travel and hospitality, you know, is kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, Joshua Jip has a great book um, called Saved by Faith Through Hospitality. That is a good one. I've read that one. That is good. Sorry, Saved by Faith and Hospitality is the name of yeah. it. Um, and so both of those are great books, you know, written by great evangelical, you know, New Testament scholars, um, but with an, you know, an eye towards really helping, you know, exposit scriptures in a helpful way. All right. Thank you. That's fantastic. Those will be helpful resources. Werner, do you have anything else before we depart? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm just grateful. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to possibly traveling to your area of the woods in the next couple of years and, uh, and then yes. experiencing some of this hospitality from an expert host. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I got to live up to my ideals now. Huh? No, 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 and, and, uh, Jackson, yeah. and when you uh, show up, you will be a gift to, <laughs> as Paul was a gift uh, when he was planning to show up to Philemon. We'll, we'll see if Jason thinks this. Thinks so when I'm in his living room. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us, uh, Jason. Uh, it's been a good conversation. Uh, where can people, if people want to communicate with you and ask you further questions, or whatnot, is there any place you send them or no? Um, no, not really, um, for now. And so, um, I mean, I have my email, but I'm probably not going to put that in a podcast, but yeah, people can reach out to you and Jax, 
And yeah, if you're interested in connecting with me, either about coming and visiting Turkey um, and some of the biblical sites that are in the country, um, feel free to reach out to Jackson. Um, and then, uh, and so, um, I mean, I have my email, but I'm probably not going to put that in a podcast. But yeah, people can reach out to you and Jackson. And yeah, if you're interested in connecting with me, either about coming and visiting Turkey um, and some of the biblical sites that are in the country, um, feel free to reach out to Jackson um, and then um, he can forward you uh, my information. That'd be fine. No, no problem. All right, everyone, thank you for joining us. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please go to iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and rate us, leave a comment, let other people know and keep the conversation going.